Oh, well, let's pray uh, as we come to God's word on this Good Friday. Our right, gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this, your word. And we, I pray today that you would help me to speak it faithfully and clearly as I ought, uh, to make uh, the revolutionary nature of Jesus' death as clear as possible, uh, that our lives might be changed for your glory. Amen. Uh, well, there's no doubt that in the 20th century alone, uh, there were a whole lot of truly revolutionary figures. Uh, Mahatma Gandhi, for example, uh, often referred to as the father of India uh, because he, he used means of nonviolent protest, of civil disobedience uh, to lead the people of India to independence from British rule. Uh, a revolutionary figure. Uh, Nelson Mandela, in many ways inspired by the methods of Mahatma Gandhi, uh, spent his life uh, kind of campaigning against the institutionalized racism and segregation in the South African government, ultimately uh, to become the first black president of South Africa. Uh, a truly revolutionary figure. A Che Guevara, uh, some of you have heard of him, or at least you've seen his picture. Uh, the Argentinian man uh, who spent his life fighting uh, against the capitalist ruling class across Latin America. Uh, because he was convinced that they were the cause uh, of the poverty and economic underdevelopment uh, that he saw. Uh, which kind of makes it a little bit ironic that, that lots of middle-class people today like to wear t-shirts with a picture of Che Guevara on it. Uh, these middle-class people who've clearly benefited from the very capitalist system that Che Guevara was protesting against. Anyway, that's just a little ironic point. Uh, whatever you think of these figures, whether you admire them or, or whether you despise them, uh, one thing is clear, that is that they brought about revolutionary change in our world. But of course, the big difference between these figures and Jesus is that these figures brought about that revolutionary change through their lives. Whereas Jesus brought about revolutionary change, not just through his life, but through his death. That's the radical claim of Christianity, right? It's Jesus' death that brings about the revolutionary change that all of us long for. Which might seem just a little bit strange when you first look at this passage. Right? Because Jesus' death just seems to be so normal in this passage. Right? And not that it's particularly normal for someone to be crucified, even in Jesus' day when that was much more common. But the way that Luke describes Jesus' death at the end of verse 46, if you look at your Bible, at the end of verse 46, Luke describes Jesus' death in such normal terms. He simply says, when Jesus had said this, he breathed his last. You know, there's no graphic details, there's no really long and drawn out description. He simply says, Jesus breathed his last. Right, that's it. Right, for this death, that Christians claim is so incredibly revolutionary. So why is it that Christians claim that? Why is it that the billions of Christians around the world worship this Jesus? Why is it that we regularly share in a meal that helps us to remember Jesus' death? Why is it that many Christians wear a symbol of Jesus' death around their neck? Why is it that we say prayers thanking Jesus for his death, or sing songs about Jesus' death, or write libraries of books kind of reflecting on the significance of Jesus' death? Let's be honest. All of that just seems weird 
unless you understand how Jesus' death brings about the revolutionary change that all of us long for. That's why Jesus' death is revolutionary. Right? It's revolutionary because Jesus died, not just as a great example of personal sacrifice, he died as our substitute. He died in our place. He died for our sins. And in the process, he made it possible for us to experience the revolutionary freedom and joy and security that all of us long for. And we see that in this passage uh, in three things that, that kind of happen around Jesus' death. Right? They happen at the moment when he dies. Uh, the three things, uh, I've given three T's. Uh, there's the total darkness. Uh, there's, <clears throat> excuse me, the torn curtain uh, and the triumphant cry. The total darkness, the torn curtain uh, and the triumphant cry. Uh, so let's look first at, at the total darkness in this passage. Uh, If you look there in verse 44, uh, Luke says, uh, It was now about noon, and darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon, for the sun stopped shining. Uh, So here we are. It's the very middle of the day, you know, high noon, that the sun is supposed to be at its peak in the sky, and yet this thick darkness uh, covers the whole land, right? All of Jerusalem and the surrounds. And now God could have used some sort of natural phenomena uh, to stop the sun shining at this point. You know, maybe he brought in a thick storm cloud or a thick, a thick fog or a, a massive desert sandstorm. Well, we don't know. Uh, but what we do know uh, is that through this darkness, God is teaching us something uh, about the significance of Jesus' death. Uh, The person of Jesus uh, throughout Luke's gospel uh, seems to have this cosmic significance. Uh, 33 years earlier, when Jesus' birth was announced in Luke chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, you might remember uh, that the darkness of the night uh, was suddenly lit up with the glory of the sun, with glorious light. And here, uh, at the very end of Jesus' life, at the moment of his death, Uh, The brightness of the day is suddenly overwhelmed uh, with the darkness of night. Uh, So so what does this darkness mean? What what is God teaching us uh, about the significance of Jesus' death through this darkness? What does it symbolize? Well, first, uh, it symbolizes mourning. Mourning. Uh, Not mourning as in the first part of the day, but mourning as in weeping. Uh, So in Amos 8, verses 9 and 10, uh, God describes uh, some of the events that are going to happen on what's called the day of the Lord. The day when God's going to come and do things uh, in a new and glorious way. And this is what God says in Amos 8, verses 9 and 10. He says, in that day, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. I will turn your religious festivals into mourning and all your singing into weeping. I will take all uh, 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 all you wear. Uh, I will make all of you wear sackcloth and shave your heads. I will make that time uh, like the morning for an only son, uh, and the end of it will be like a bitter day. 
Uh, so this darkness at Jesus' death symbolizes the fact that, that this is a moment of intense mourning. Intense mourning, but because the one and only Son of God is being crucified. Uh, but it's not just a symbol of mourning, it's also a symbol uh, of great evil. We know that, but because just before, uh, because just in the previous chapter, in, in Luke 22, verses 52 and 53, uh, Jesus said to the Jewish leaders uh, when they came to arrest him, Am I leading a rebellion uh, that you have come to me with swords and clubs? Uh, every day I was with you in the temple courts, uh, and you did not lay a hand on me. Uh, but this is your hour, the hour when darkness reigns. So this darkness at Jesus' death is a symbol of the fact that this is a horrific evil that is being done. The one and only Son of God is being unjustly condemned and crucified. That is a horrific evil. Darkness reigns. So this darkness is a symbol of mourning. It's a symbol of evil. Uh, but perhaps most significantly, uh, it's a symbol of God's judgment. Uh, earlier in Luke's gospel, in Luke chapter 9, uh, verse 31, uh, Luke well, was giving his account of what's called the transfiguration. Uh, and he tells us there uh, that Jesus spoke with Moses and Elijah up on the mountain about his departure, which he was about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. Now, if you've got your Bible open at Luke 9, verse 31, uh, you've probably got a footnote there, uh, which tells you that, that the word departure there uh, is actually the Greek word for exodus. So in this, uh, Luke's taking us back uh, to God's great act of redemption in the Old Testament, in the book of Exodus, uh, where God, through, through the sacrifice of the Passover lamb, uh, brought his people out of slavery in Egypt. So perhaps it's no surprise then uh, that, that when we get uh, into the closing chapters uh, of Luke's gospel from Luke 22 onwards, uh, Luke clearly describes Jesus' death as happening at the same time as the Passover. Uh, Luke 22 verse 1 uh, says, Now the festival of unleavened bread called the Passover was approaching. And the chief priests and the teachers of the law uh, were looking for some way to get rid of Jesus. The same thing down in, in verses 7 and 8. And then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. Jesus sent Peter and John uh, saying, go and make preparations for us to eat the Passover. So what's the connection here uh, between this total darkness at Jesus' death and the Passover? Well, the connection is that the final plague that the God kind of visited upon Egypt, right before the sacrifice of the Passover lamb that bore his judgment and set his people free from Egypt, right, that that final plague was the plague of total darkness. So if you look back at Exodus, in Exodus 10, uh, verse 22, uh, we read that Moses stretched out his hands towards the sky and total darkness covered all of Egypt for three days. You see what Luke's telling us with this total darkness, right? He's telling us, uh, that, uh, he's telling us that Jesus and his death on the cross is like the death 
of the ultimate Passover lamb. Right, that through Jesus' sacrifice on the cross, God is setting us free, uh, not just from political or economic slavery, like he did with Israel in, in the book of Exodus. Uh, he's setting us free from a much deeper slavery, uh, a spiritual slavery, uh, a slavery to sin. Now you might say, well, I'm not a slave to sin. Oh, I'm not a slave to anyone or anything. Uh, don't talk to me about being a slave. Of course, that's what everyone says uh, until they actually start trying to take off the chains of slavery. So let me challenge you, even for one day, to live in a way that is completely free from any sin or imperfection or failure. I mean, just, just take off the chains of sin. You can't do it, right? I, I can't do it. Not one of us, even for one day, even for one part of a day, can live in a way that's completely free from sin, can live in a way that measures up to our own imperfect ideals and standards, let alone in a way that measures up to God's perfect and holy standards. But all of us, apart from Jesus, are slaves to sin. But the wonderful news of Christianity is that uh, through faith in Jesus' death on the cross, you can be set free from slavery to sin. Right? Because Jesus paid the penalty to set you free. You, you see, the penalty for our rejection of God, the, the source of all life and everything good, uh, the, the penalty for our sin was death. And the wonderful news of Christianity is that Jesus paid that penalty in full in our place as our substitute on the cross. And so we can be set free from our slavery to sin. Uh, the total darkness in this passage tells us that Jesus' death on the cross offers us the revolutionary freedom, the deep freedom that all of us long for. A freedom from slavery to sin uh, because Jesus paid the penalty to set us free. So that's the total darkness. Well, what about the torn curtain? Uh, if you look in verse 45, Luke uh, tells us that in the midst of the total darkness, uh, the curtain in the temple was torn in two. Uh, from the very beginning of the Bible, uh, it's very, very clear that God made us as human beings uh, to find our ultimate joy in being in relationship with him. That's where we really flourish as human beings, when we're enjoying God, when we're finding our satisfaction in knowing God, in delighting in God. That's very clear in Genesis chapters 1 and 2, where Adam and Eve enjoy being in God's presence in the garden. But of course, in Genesis 3, everything changes. Humanity's sin, and we're cast out of the garden, where we're cast out of God's presence. And as one of my kids' favourite Christian books says, right, it's called The Garden, The Curtain, and The Cross. And the book says that in that moment, right, when God cast us out of the garden, it was like God put up a massive keep out sign. A sign that said, because of your sin, you can't come in. That's what this curtain in the temple's about. Right, like the garden... The temple was the place where God's presence dwelt in a special way, a unique way. 
Uh, so this curtain says, because of your sin, you can't come in. Uh, this curtain uh, functioned as a, as a continual reminder to God's people uh, that even though God had made them to, to find their ultimate joy in being in relationship with him, uh, because of their sin, uh, it just wasn't safe for them to be in his presence. Uh, but in verse 45, where we see that at the moment of Jesus' death, uh, all of that changes. Right? God himself kind of rips the curtain in the temple from top to bottom, demonstrating once and for all that he has accepted Jesus' sacrifice on the cross uh, as the full and complete sacrifice for our sins. Uh, so as my children's book says, uh, because of your sin, you can't come in, but Jesus died on the cross to take your sin. Uh, so now all his friends can now come in. Uh, through faith in Jesus' death on the cross, you, you can come into God's presence. You, you can have unprecedented access to the presence of God. And you can know the infinite joy that comes from that. Uh, let me urge you this day, uh, this Good Friday, uh, to stop fooling around with the fleeting pleasures of this world. Get serious about joy, about happiness. Put your faith in Jesus' death on the cross and find the revolutionary joy, the eternal joy, the infinite joy that comes from knowing your God. We've seen the total darkness in this passage, which speaks of the fact that God offers us revolutionary freedom. We've seen the torn curtain, which speaks of the fact that God offers us revolutionary joy. And now we're going to see the triumphant cry, which speaks of the revolutionary security that God offers us through Jesus' death. In verse 46, Luke says, Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. It's worth noting that just as the total darkness and the torn curtain are pretty unusual, so also that this triumphant cry is unusual. That's why Luke puts it in his account. It's because it's a little bit strange. You might think, oh, well, of course Jesus cried out in a loud cry. Right? He was in agony. He's dying on the cross. But actually, at this point in crucifixion, usually the person being crucified would have been so exhausted that there's no way they would have had energy to cry out in a loud voice. So we've got to ask ourselves, why does Jesus cry out? And why does he cry out in these words in particular? If you look into the, this uh, prayer that Jesus prays a little, uh, you, you'll discover that this is a prayer uh, that many, if not most, devout Jews would have prayed every single night. It came into Jewish culture uh, because it was based on Psalm 31 verse 5, uh, where King David prayed a prayer like this. Right? King David prayed, uh, Into your hands, Lord, I commit my spirit. And if you read through all of Psalm 31 later on, which I really encourage you to do, uh, you'll discover that there are all sorts of phrases in Psalm 31 uh, that could easily describe Jesus' suffering uh, as he was crucified on the cross. Uh, but, but of course, there are two important differences uh, between King David's prayer and Jesus' prayer. 
Uh, the first difference is that when King David prayed his prayer, uh, he was praying with, with this deep confidence uh, that God would preserve his life from his enemies uh, even while he slept at night. And that's a wonderful confidence that King David had. But, but it's not quite as mind-blowing as the confidence that Jesus had. Because when Jesus prayed this prayer, he was praying not just that God would preserve his life when he went to sleep, but that God would preserve his life beyond his death. I mean, he was absolutely confident that for him, his death would be nothing more than a short sleep. And before long, he'd wake up in the arms of his loving father. Which leads to the second difference between King David's prayer and Jesus' prayer, which is, which is that Jesus prayed to God as his Father. Like, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Jesus' confidence that, that he was the one and only Son of God the Father. That, that confidence runs right through Jesus' life and ministry. Uh, in Luke 2, verse 49, uh, you might remember Jesus' parents find him in the temple. They've been looking for him, wondering where he is. They find him in the temple. Uh, and Jesus said, didn't you know I'd be in my father's house? Uh, another translation, didn't you know that I'd be on about my father's business? Uh, then in Luke, uh, in Luke 3, verse 22, Jesus is baptized and God, his father, declares from heaven, you are my son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. In Luke 11, verse 2, Jesus teaches his disciples to pray to God, to pray to God as their Father in heaven. In Luke 22, verse 42, just the previous chapter, Jesus himself prays in the Garden of Gethsemane, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but your will be done. Just a few verses before this, in verse 34, Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. It's clear from the beginning to end of Luke's gospel that Jesus had this deep confidence, this wonderful assurance that he was the one and only son of God the Father. So it's really no surprise that here at the very end of his life, Jesus prays to his father, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. I mean, he doesn't really pray like that, does it? He, he prays in a loud voice, right? Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Why, why does Jesus pray so loudly? Well, when he does it, because this is a cry of victory. It's a cry of triumph. It's the cry of a son who knows that he's spent his whole life doing the will of his loving father. And now his father's will is done. It's finished. It's completed. And so he cries out in victory, in triumph. For he knows that he's paid for the sins of humanity in full. As John's gospel says, it is finished. So Jesus cries out in triumph. His job is done. And he entrusts himself with this absolute security into the loving arms of his father. As I said earlier, he knows that for him, like Psalm 31 verse 5, he knows 
and that for him, his death is going to be nothing more than a short sleep, you know, a nap. And then he'll wake up and everything will be okay because he'll be with his loving father. As some of you have maybe seen this with a child before. I've seen it with my own kids. You know, they're grumpy, they're tired, they're, they're irritable. And they come and climb up onto you. They curl up, they snuggle in, and they fall asleep. And they know that everything's going to be okay because they're in the, they're in the arms of someone they love, of someone that they know loves them. Now, that's the kind of love and security that Jesus enjoyed with God, his Father. And it's the kind of love and security that God wants you to enjoy with him. God wants you to know that you can entrust yourself into his loving arms. You can entrust yourself into his loving arms and know that you're completely secure, even when your health feels insecure or your work seems insecure or your income feels insecure, or your family and friends seem insecure, or, or, or really everything and everyone in your life seems insecure, as some of you might feel right now, you can entrust yourself to the loving arms of your Father, knowing that your relationship with Him as God, your Father, is rock-solid secure. It cannot be shaken, because Jesus, God's Son, was triumphant. He was victorious. He finished the work. He paid for your sins in full on the cross. So you are in relationship with God as your father and absolutely nothing can shake you out of his loving arms. So you can know that it's going to be okay. You can rest easy. I'm not saying it's going to be, it's not going to be hard or it's going to be easy. But you can know that it's going to be okay because you're in the loving arms of your father. So Jesus' death is a revolutionary death because it makes it possible for the, some of the deepest desires of our soul to be satisfied. The total darkness in this passage speaks of the revolutionary freedom that God offers us. The torn curtain speaks of the revolutionary joy that God offers us. And the triumphant cry speaks of the revolutionary security that God offers us through Jesus' death. So the obvious question is, how do we respond to all of this? Right? How do we accept what God is offering us? So we see that in the rest of the passage, in verses 48 and 49, we see a couple of very normal responses. Right? I'm not saying they're the right response, but they are very normal responses. Right? So first, in verse 48, we see those who really do feel sorry for Jesus, but then they walk away from him. Look at verse 48. Uh, when all the people uh, who had gathered to witness the sight uh, saw what took place, they beat their breasts uh, and they went away. But maybe you see a little bit of yourself here. Right? Every now and then you kind of gather around Jesus to check him out. Right? Maybe even every Easter. And when you do so, uh, you really are blown away. Uh, by the degree of his pain and suffering and sacrifice. Yeah, but then you just walk away and go back to your normal life. There's no real impact on you. No, no real change on you. Or maybe you're like Jesus' disciples in verse 49, who stand at a distance from him. Luke says, but all those who knew Jesus, in, including the, the women who had followed him from Galilee, stood at a distance 
watching these things. Uh, maybe this is a little bit like you. You're, you're kind of happy to check out Jesus from a distance. And uh, maybe you're, you're even willing to follow Jesus where it seems to bring guaranteed kind of peace and prosperity and, and popularity. But at the first whiff of suffering or sacrifice for the sake of following Jesus, you back right off and you just check him out from a distance. Now, these are two really normal responses to Jesus' death. They're not the right response right? because they won't bring about the revolutionary change that God offers you through Jesus' death. The revolutionary change that you long for. If you want to experience that, you've got to make a much more revolutionary response to Jesus' death. It's the response that we see from the centurion in verse 47. Luke says, The centurion, seeing what had happened, praised God and said, Surely this was a righteous man. Isn't that incredible? It's the person who's literally crucifying Jesus uh, who understands that there's something different about Jesus. I say something different but because I'm not sure that in this moment uh, the centurion becomes a Christian. Uh, but I'm pretty sure that he does become a Christian later on. Oh, well, why do I say that? Well, but because we know from Luke chapter 1 verses 1 to 4 that Luke's intention in his gospel uh, is to produce an orderly eyewitness account. But all of Jesus' disciples are watching from a distance. So where do all these details about Jesus' death come from in Luke's gospel? It's a little bit speculative, right? but I want to say that they came from this centurion. This centurion who really had an up-close view of Jesus' crucifixion. This centurion who oversaw the humiliation and whipping and crucifixion of Jesus. Uh, but had also heard him say things like, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. He'd also heard Jesus say to the thief being crucified next to him, Today you will be with me in paradise. He'd heard Jesus cry out, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Hearing these things, seeing how Jesus died, the centurion, uh, the centurion cried out, praising God, and said, Surely, uh, this was a righteous man. But at a minimum, that, that means that the centurion came to understand uh, that even though he just crucified Jesus, Jesus was innocent. He was righteous. He'd done absolutely nothing wrong. Right? At a minimum, that's what this means. Uh, but maybe it means more. Right? Matthew and Mark's gospel have the centurion saying, uh, surely uh, this was the son of God. So, so maybe the centurion saying Jesus was right when he claimed to be the son of God. It was right for Jesus to claim to be the king in God's kingdom, to, to be the one and only son of God the Father. Or Jesus was righteous in claiming to be those things. Whatever level of understanding you think this centurion had, it seems clear to me that in this moment God sowed seeds of faith in his heart which later came to full fruit. Which I think should be a real encouragement to all of us. 
It should be an encouragement because it tells us that the revolutionary freedom and joy and security that I've been speaking about, that kind of change in your life is available to anyone, absolutely anyone, anyone who would humbly put their trust in Jesus. You don't have to be a particularly good person. You've got to bust that myth. Right? This centurion was literally crucifying the Son of God. Well, you don't go get much worse than that. And yet he got accepted. Well, you don't have to be a particularly religious person. It was the Jewish religious leaders who wanted to get rid of Jesus. Right? Religion will do you no good if it's not accompanied by a desire to take the revolutionary step of humbly trusting in Jesus putting your faith in Jesus, trusting that he died on the cross, not just for sins in general, not as a great example of, of, of personal sacrifice. No, he died on the cross for your sins. He died in your place as your substitute so that through faith in him, you might experience the revolutionary freedom and joy and security that, that will not only completely revolutionize your life, uh, but will compel you to get on board with Jesus' revolutionary plan to completely transform our world. That is the revolutionary death of Jesus. Let's pray. Oh, our gracious Father, we thank you for this, your word, and the insight that it gives us into just how revolutionary Jesus' death was. Uh, we praise you that the total darkness in this passage speaks of the revolutionary freedom that you offer those who put their faith in Christ. Uh, we praise you that the torn curtain in this passage speaks of the revolutionary joy that you offer those who put their faith in Christ. Uh, and we praise you uh, that the triumphant cry in this passage uh, speaks of the revolutionary security and love and intimacy uh, that you offer those who put their faith in Christ. Uh, that they become your dearly loved children uh, who are completely secure in your arms. And may this truth take root in our hearts uh, and bear fruit for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.